Hey everyone, my name is Yaro, and you're listening to the Daydream Rose podcast. Really happy to have you, and grateful for you spending a little bit of time with this podcast today. Um, it's the new moon in, in Pisces, and I thought that this episode was going to be a really nice way to celebrate that. I spoke to Burnham of Wealthy Burmadies about so many things that are really close to my heart. We talked about making friends with your neighborhood plans, about weaving disability justice and anti-capitalist values into your healing work, about navigating feminized labor with the support of plants, and about heartbreak and grief as a sacred practice. It was a really rich and beautiful conversation that just like my whole body was like, yes, <laughs> resonating and nodding along. And I really hope you all enjoy it too. Brunham also has um, a class coming up on how to support for emotional intelligence and relational work. And I'll link to that in the show notes as well. And I also recommend signing up to their newsletter if you're interested. I have a new offering too that I quickly want to mention. It's called Witch Heart Mentoring. And it's a three-month container with mentoring with me. <laughs> um, you'll receive tarot readings. We can do breathwork or visualizations together. We can um, come up with a little ritual that you can do in your own home. We can do creative writing, scene making together. Um, plant magic can be part of this too. There's lots of different things that um, yeah, that can be customized to what you most need right now if you're in a transition or if you're navigating grief or loss or want to expand creatively. Um, there's an enterprise to this. It costs $270 at the moment and will be um, on, on this offer until the 2nd of March and then afterwards it will be $330. Um, so I'll link to that in show notes as well. You can check it out and ask me anything if you have questions. Again, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I'm wishing you the most beautiful moon cycle. Hey, everyone. Welcome. I'm really excited for today's conversation. I know I say this a lot, but honestly, I'm just really lucky with the people that I get to speak to. I feel really inspired by their work. And I'm just so glad that we have the space to have conversations like this. So today I'm speaking to Bruno Vasha. Um, of Wealthy Remedies, and we have already talked a little bit about what we want to chat about today and honestly there's so much there that excites me. There's plant magic and um, alternative approaches to healing, um, there's clinical practices and what that means and weaving science and intuition together um, and all these really cool things. So thank you so much for being here and making time. I'm really excited to speak to you. And I would love to start by asking you where you are in the world right now and what nature is like around you. Yeah, thank you so much, Yara, for having me. I'm really grateful to be here. Um, so right now in the world, I am on Ohlone land in what is now called Oakland, California, or the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, is it okay if I go into depth about the oh, nature yes. here? Go it's, ahead. It's pretty, <laughs> Please. It's pretty amazing. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, so this region is known for the complexity of landforms, which it are the result of millions of years of tectonic plate movements. It's really active in that regard. Uh, we're crossed by six or seven major fault lines. Uh, and I've had the experience of earthquakes here for the first time in my life. Wow. Uh, it's also home to a complex network of watersheds, marshes, rivers, creeks, reservoirs, and bays, which 
mostly drain into the San Francisco Bay and the Pacific Ocean. And prior to European settler colonialism in this place, the shores of the bay were mostly tidal marshes. But today, the bay has been really re-engineered as an aspect of urbanization. So there's only 50 marshes and marsh fragments here today. Um, and it's also important to mention the ecology type of oak savanna whenever I talk about this area, um, which is a forested grassland with oak trees being the dominant tree species. And this is inherently a fire ecology, which has been disrupted by settler agricultural and logging practices alongside capitalist urban development over the past 250 years. Um, and people tend to know about the, the devastating wildfires here in California, but it's not as commonly acknowledged that the cause of these is the result of settler land management practices and that there are different kinds of fires in this ecology that occur within indigenous land management practices, which mm -hmm. are actually a balanced oxygen ecology. Yeah, um, that makes okay. So I'm also looking at this picture on your website, which has such beautiful colors. And I would love to know a little bit more what you see when you walk outside the door and what kind of plants you meet and what you're excited about in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the, the picture on my website is a little outdated. It's from my, when I was living in a more rural setting. Um, so now when I walk out my door, I mostly see uh, impermeable surfaces like concrete, mm -hmm. uh, businesses, residential buildings, highways, and the like. Um, there are a lot of beautiful gardens and plants here, uh, especially because the climate in the Bay hosts plants from so, so, so many different places that have all naturalized here. So this is the first place, for example, that I've ever seen passion flower blooming in February, mm, Wow! Uh, which was really wild to me the first time I experienced it. Um, and there's just walls of jasmine in the springtime and it's just, it's really luscious and, and vibrant. And it's been really humbling for me also as someone who enjoys botanical identification because this area is so diverse that I often find myself looking at plants that I don't recognize at all. Mm -hmm. I love passion flowers so much. I love touching the little ringlets. Oh my god. <laughs> I feel like she's like my alien dream femme. Mm -hmm. Definitely passion flower is not from this world. I feel the same. Yeah. yeah. So mm -hmm. special. <laughs> so special yes um how would you describe your work I know this is a really big question and I really don't expect you or anyone to have a perfect answer as I totally hold that this is always shifting and all that kind of stuff but I would love to know what what comes to mind when you think about your work at the moment absolutely yeah thank you for that permission to 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 be changeable over time <laughs> with it um so I'm a clinical herbalist and a wellness educator with uh commitment to disability justice, anti-capitalist ethics, and supporting my communities in their healing work. Um, so my clients and students are often disabled, chronically ill, neurodiverse, queer, sex working, drug using or sober, trauma survivors, multiply marginalized, leftists, artists, <laughs> and creative geniuses, um, some of my overlapping communities. And my clinical practice is open to everyone, but I especially love working with other queer femmes too. 
and both my clinical and teaching approaches bring together my scientific training in herbalism along with my intuitive faculties and ancestral medicines. Um, especially in the past handful of years, I've really been focusing on the plants of my lineages as someone who is of Ashkenazi Jewish and Celtic descent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering how you first got into plant work or how plants found you. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, so I grew up in a, a rural setting um, in upstate New York and I was always a bit of an oddball uh, and an introvert. So I've been refocusing my social energy on plant connection from a fairly young age. <laughs> Uh, I was really attuned to plant spirits and other subtle entities when I was a child. And and I often did things that I now recognize to be ritual work, but at the time was just my version of playing games and like keeping myself busy and entertained. Um, so I would like build altars in the forest and talk to trees and animals and move energy and do visualizations and, and things like that. Um, and then when I was 16, I was planning to become a vegetable farmer <laughs> That's before amazing. my, yeah, all my disabilities <laughs> kicked in and made that, uh, feel less viable. But I worked on a lot of different kinds of farms during the growing seasons. And alongside that, a friend of mine also was taking me into the forest and teaching me the names of the wild plants there. Um, and then later in my teens, I became especially interested in designing and planting perennial polycultures to support the longevity of fruit trees in orchard settings. That was kind of like where I had gotten with my growing interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took a workshop on designing forest gardens and met my first real live herbalist. I didn't mm-hmm. even know that herbalists existed. Um, and her name is Dina Falcone. And I got to visit her medicine garden and make dandelion root tincture with her. And it was It was actually many years, several years between that experience and attending my first formal training, but that was when I became officially enchanted by medicinal plants. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's incredible. So much of that resonates with me, and I think that connecting with plants is such a good survival strategy. How wise you were, right? Yeah. (laughs) Did your childhood mirror some of that? I mean, yeah, I was also a really, really intense introvert and found human relationships really complex and just found so much connection and comfort in the non-human world. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's that's really great. I'm so glad that we were received in that way. Yeah, I feel really lucky. I remember, you know, as a teenager, it felt like really isolating, especially as a queer person and like not having yet found my people. But um, during childhood, it was like, it was perfect. I was not mm-hmm. lonely in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I would also love to know a little bit more about your work around feminist, feminized labor. So maybe can we begin by talking about what that means to you for people who don't know? And yeah. then I would love to hear more about how that's woven into your work. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you for asking. I'm my current and perhaps forever obsession is feminized <laughs> labor. So I will talk about it happily at length, um, <laughs> perhaps more than some people want to hear about it. So I'm glad you're interested. <laughs> um, so I define feminized labor as work that has been historically performed by women femmes of various genders and, and other people who exist outside and beyond 
white supremacist binary concepts of gender. So this is the work that is largely unwaged or underpaid and often remains unacknowledged as real work. Um, so it can include domestic work like cooking and cleaning, as well as providing support to young people, old people, disabled people, uh, work like emotional processing, sex work, managing interpersonal conflict, especially uh, within families and without involving the police, birth work, parenting, coordinating complex logistics like access support and, and resource redistribution, navigating mental health challenges while also supporting people who are struggling with their own mental health challenges, uh, intuitive faculties, nursing, harm reduction, group facilitation and political <laughs> organizing, building and maintaining uh, rapid crisis response networks, art making, various healing modalities. It's like everything that I love mm -hmm. um, and that makes the world go round. Um, so my, my understanding of this work has been shaped by the work of a lot of other people, uh, especially queer femmes of color in their writing, um, such as uh, a book that came out pretty recently that I really love, um, that I recommend everyone who's into this to check out called Care Work by Leah Lakshmi Pipsna Samrasina. Oh my and God. Yes, that's so good. So good. We'll link to it in the show notes as well. Yes. Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. And yeah, also in my lived experiences of femme community, um, some other books that have been really influential on my thinking about this have been um, Writing on Capitalism and Witchcraft by Sylvia Federici mm -hmm. and uh, The Sick Woman Theory that's been developed, is in the process of being developed by Johanna Hedva. Um, so lots of, lots mm -hmm. of, resources, lots of um, amazing, amazing contributors to, to understanding what is feminized labor. Um, for me, as a, I'm an invisibly disabled, white, cis-passing, non-binary femme herbalist, and I feel like I've mostly been the recipient of accumulated and continuous feminized labor, but I also have intimacy with it as a practitioner, mm -hmm. too. Um, and I, I, I'll, it also feels connected to me um, as a way of uh, doing work with my ancestors as a white person who is invested in dismantling whiteness. Um, and the way I was able to make that connection was actually through a friend of mine um, who taught me about uh, this, this concept um, that is called tachinas, um, which is the, the Hebrew Yiddish word for it. Um, and so my friend Jonah of Narrow Bridge Candles um, taught me about Tachinas around the time that a beloved chosen family member of mine was dying. And Tachinas are Ashkenazi Jewish women's household prayers. They're, they're usually passed down in spoken Yiddish rather than written in Hebrew because uh, most prayers um, were written in Hebrew as, in the context of heteropatriarchy, like women or people perceived to be women. Um, were not taught to read Hebrew. Mm -hmm. um, so tachinas um, are spoken and they sanctify everything from baking bread to giving birth to measuring the wicks for candles, using gravestones in the cemetery, wow. <laughs> to making the candles to honor the dead and the living. 
Um, and so in the last year of my friend's life, who was, who was dying around the time that I learned about cleanness, um, my friend who was dying kept having visions of candles. And so I, I visited jo my friend Jonah, the candle maker, to, to make candles to bring to my dying friend and to connect with this ancient practice. And I felt a really powerful link to feminized labor and the sanctity of it when I was doing that. Mm -hmm. And it was also around that time that my, my grandma, who has also now passed away, told me that she remembered we had an ancestor who was a candle maker. So it, mm -hmm. all, it kind of all wove together in that really potent moment. Um, and then plant medicines are also part of feminized labor, of course, too. I really, I believe they've accompanied this work since the beginning of human time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was thinking, especially of your namesake, Yarrow, mm -hmm. um, which has been found in some of the oldest burial sites on the earth, in addition to being native to almost every landmass, which means that most people's ancestors have had a relationship with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, uh, so special. And I just, I believe that plants pretty much know us better than we know ourselves in mm -hmm. the context of late capitalism and, so many generations of unprocessed grief and trauma. Um, they're really, they've been our constant companions and they're so generous and it, and plant medicine invites us into the process of healing ourselves and each other and can also help reweave our collective sense of responsibility to land base, which might be a day late and a dollar short at this point, but maybe not. <laughs> uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I hope that, made sense it totally makes sense and I think it was a really beautiful springboard for me to explore my relationship to this more because I feel like it's something that I've lost touch with thinking about a little bit but it's so rich and meaningful and obviously such a big part of our lives that I really want to pay more attention and find more language for it I think that that's something that you're really amazing at is naming things and having beautiful language to describe it. So thank you thank for you. sharing that. <laughs> thank you. I'm a little bit convinced that feminized labor is everything. So that's my bias. It's like literally every single type of work. <laughs> um, but yeah, I also just want to be clear that um, no, you, it doesn't have anything to do with your gender identity, mm -hmm. one's relationship to feminized labor. Mm -hmm. um, so people yeah, lots of people practice this and have skills in this. And um, it's it's more about the societal construction of this type of labor than it mm -hmm. is about how someone identifies. Um, so I don't want it to feel like it's just for women or mm -hmm. something or just for femmes or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. Um, there's also a beautiful bridge in what you just talked about, which would lead us towards kind of thinking about heartbreak and grief and how those things work um, alongside our practices or weave into them and how they are gateways sometimes. Is there anything that you would like to share about that? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Um, so yeah, one of my, one of my classes in the herbal support for feminized labor series is about heartbreaking grief because I do believe that grieving is a form of labor and it's because I I've experienced that personally and I know other people have that it's, it takes a lot of work and a lot of energy to actually grieve. Um, so, but that, you know, that's not a type of work that's generally acknowledged or supported or, or, you know, enriched with, um, mentorship skill building <laughs> so much. Um, mm -hmm. so one of my first, um, kind of 
ways of understanding heartbreak and grief as a as a sacred practice and also as a type of work was when I learned um, this Yiddish proverb that is um, only that which is brokenhearted is whole. Mm, wow. Yeah, that one carried me through a, a pretty significant loss. Um, and that was really powerful. And then more recently, I have a quote that I keep returning to um, that about grief that is it okay for me to read it actually? Oh, yeah, totally. Have it handy. <laughs> <laughs> my life. Amazing um, Tara's energy. I love it. <laughs> so, thank you. Um, so yeah, this is a quote from the wild edge of sorrow by Francis mm-hmm. Miller. Mm-hmm. And it begins for the most part, grief is not a problem to be solved, not a condition to be medicated, but a deep encounter with the essential experience of being human. Grief becomes problematic when the conditions needed to help us with grief are absent. For example, when we are forced to carry our sorrow in isolation, or when the time needed to fully metabolize the nutrients of a particular loss is denied, and we are pressured to return to normal too soon. We are told to get on with it and get over it. The lack of courtesy and compassion surrounding grief is astonishing reflecting an underlying fear and mistrust of this basic human experience. We must restore the healing ground of grief. Mm, thank you so much for sharing that. I love that book so much. And yeah. yes, it's been really, really great to hear you speak those words. Yes. Thank you. Yes. I feel like our, our bibliography for this conversation is going to be like <laughs> really exciting. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and I, when I read that, it also was really affirming because no one ever taught me how or why to grieve. Um, so I still feel really young in my relationship to this work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that on a personal level, I've navigated collective grief, ancestral grief, the physical deaths of loved ones, uh, both chosen family and family of origin heartbreak over relationships ending, lost homes, and and also the grief that feels embedded for me in the experience of chronic illness. Um, So I've been consistently drawn to engage with death and loss as a natural component of being alive from a very young age. Like I was always the one like sitting with the roadkill (laughs) (laughs) or whatever. Um, But I I also did hospice work for several years um, as as a personal support worker. Um, and then helped a lot of people cross over in in a professional context, which is unique. I mean, it was still very emotional and intimate, um, and it was also a job. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up shifting out of hospice work to do support work for myself and other people when, um, several people in my personal life started dying of cancer, suicide, addiction, accidents. Mm -hmm everything. (laughs) Um, and yeah, I've, I've always learned a lot from discomfort and I feel that heartbreak and grief involve a lot of discomfort. So I, I also know that these experiences have pushed my mental health to the outer edges of my own desire to stay here and be alive. Um, Mm -hmm. so I, that kind of, um, anchors my desire to make sure that my clients and students know that there are Herbal and relational supports for navigating these states of acute emotional pain and that they don't have to go at it alone because there were several losses that I did have to navigate alone and um, I wish I hadn't. I'm not really into the like, 
you know, what doesn't kill you makes you, makes you stronger. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, actually like it's, it's okay to have various kinds of support for navigating things like this. Oh yes, absolutely. And especially in addition to the human support, have plant support as well, or animal support or landscape support or grass in your yard kind of support. Because I think sometimes when we are deep in heartbreak, it's hard to trust humans, isn't it? And it feels so good to have other non-human creatures to lean into and exchange support with as well. Definitely. Yeah. I'm curious about your relationship to to heartbreak and grief too, or how that interacts with your work, if you feel comfortable talking about that. Yeah, sure. It's also something that I can talk about all day long. Okay, great. And grief and heartbreak all day long. Um, (laughs) I think, gosh, I, I think I have yeah I've also experienced physical death in my family from a very young age my uncle died by suicide when I was four Mm -hmm. and um, as a young teenager I was very heartbroken about Mm -hmm. the world and also about specific relationships and I think I've generally often been someone who's really fallen into a heartbreak um, Mm -hmm. because I love very wildly and I really love falling in love and Mm -hmm. um and and I grieve things. I really feel lost. I've just completed a death doula training that was very interesting and transformative and um, super exciting for me to do. It was, a, I think it was too short a program. It felt like mm. I have month and month of reading and integrating to do, which mm-hmm. I'm really excited about doing. But that felt really special to me. And I think, yeah, I love the book that you shared. That's really beautiful. And this year in particular, it's been really important for me to really get to know my own grief and and also think about weaving that into a more cyclical way of being I know cyclical living has become a bit of a hashtag (laughs) but but, you know yeah I'm very conflicted about this whole things are becoming hashtag thing because I think they do in a way for a reason because we really need them and in other ways we have lots of big questions to ask about what social media culture does to these things but anyway that's a different tangent I think that's like a whole other oh my God, yeah. <laughs> yes right um but anyway coming back to my initial tangent what I was meaning to say was I think also in the context of business and relationships I've, I've learned a lot more to be confident in my grief and comfortable with the discomfort this year um yeah. and I think how that applies to business things in particular is really the space to allow decay and death is so important. Like they, you know, we just really cannot always be in spring and summer and endless expansion the way capitalism would like us to be. And I think making these periods of um, contraction is so important and something that we're really not used to anymore. And I think it's it's just creating such fertile soil to let things die down. I've just um, completed a program that I've been teaching for two years called Embodied Magic and mm. I've been doing it every month that I did it but it just has come to its own end with the Gemini, Gemini full moon just now where mm. a cycle in my own life came to an end that was two years long um, mm. two years ago I was um, sexually assaulted and that program can kind of came out, out of that desire to reconnect with embodiment and reclaim joy and pleasure and all these beautiful things that I felt like a lot of loss around. Um, yeah. But I'm stepping forward in the 2020 kind of able to 
be a bit more playful and open and not needing that rigid container so much anymore. And I think, um, I think the last thing I will say, I feel that being aware of our losses and really making space for this grief is the first step to kind of making space for shifting into other things, right? Because skipping over it, I feel, is just piling up this heaviness on our shoulders of untended grief. And that's really limiting ourselves, I think, if, if we don't, yeah, look at it. So that was my little ramble. Thank you so much for asking. Oh, thank you so much for everything you just shared. There's so much in there. I feel like we could have many, many conversations. <laughs> I hope we will. And that last piece that, that you just said were about the pile up and, and that can happen when you avoid um, giving space to it reminds me of the, that piece in the quote where it talks about the nutrients of a particular <laughs> loss, where it's like, and, and, that uh, you know losses can be nutritious in a way it sounds mm-hmm. funny to say it like that but um but also they can um you know there's kind of an opportunity to ex- to receive that from them but then it's not uh it's not forever if you have mm-hmm. a pile up then you can't successfully metabolize any of it right mm-hmm. yeah so i do i feel like that's a that's a motivation i noticed that phenomena when i like during some of my earlier losses in my life, how it would just pile up. As soon as I was like the grief portal was open, suddenly I was grieving like literally everything that mm-hmm. I didn't realize I had to grieve. And it was really overwhelming and, mm-hmm. you know, quadruple exhausting on top of whatever the most current loss was. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, just something, some yeah. things that came up during that last piece, but thank you so much for everything you said. Mm-hmm. There's so much in there. Same to you. Yes. I love that we're talking about this and I'm so excited for the work that you do and the things you'll be doing next year and your teachings, because I feel exactly the same. If we are surprised by grief, it just really brings home what other griefs we have not looked at yet or haven't had it, you know, it's not, not for lack of wanting to, but I think so often with the systems that we're living in is a lack of space and resources to, to really do this work. So yeah. 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 Um I um I I'm so fascinated by your background, all the things that you've experienced and the different roles that you've had and this beautiful ways in which you can conceptualize um your approach to them in a really tangible, grounded, Taurusy, accessible <laughs> way. Um so I'm wondering what you're most excited about at the moment when it comes to collective healing and maybe um yeah, how you see your role in that, because I think your role in that is magical. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> um, I, I really appreciate that. Um, I think, well, starting on the practical kind of small scale level, as is my inclination, um, I'm really excited to keep learning about and engaging with um, some disciplines, some specific disciplines. Um, so I really, I'm excited about polyvagal theory right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that has happened on the podcast yet at all. I, I'm not really prepared to go into it in depth <laughs> right now, but, um, but check it out. Polyvagal mm-hmm. theory felt really useful. Um, somatics continues to feel really interesting and expansive as a discipline that I want to be doing with myself and with other people and and also just generally intuitive skill building as a way of cultivating resilience in our nervous systems um which really need it right now uh in terms of 
kind of the broad collective healing, I, I really feel strongly that disability justice is, is the corner of movement work where I felt most inspired and at home. And I really want to keep learning how to weave the values of disability justice, such as access support, um, into the daily fabric of our lives. feels really important mm-hmm. um, and integrated with a lot of different, uh, yeah, it just feels like it's, it's all in there mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty much, unlike many movement spaces that seem to be missing like a big piece. Um, so that's been really, really exciting for me. And then, and then on the even broader level of the entire collective, including like all life forms and sentient entities and ancestors and everybody I'm interested in. This is more abstract, but still um, important in the destruction of white supremacist capitalism, Mm -hmm. which doesn't feel like exciting exactly because it's not (laughs) fun or easy or clear cut, but it does feel completely necessary if we are to continue existing together collectively mm-hmm. and if we want to earnestly attempt any kind of collective healing project. Um, mm-hmm. That's a big old can of worms right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, totally. And, and again, you have really outlined it very beautifully. And, <laughs> and yeah, this, this is great. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I'm, glad. Um, I'm glad to both be like in the world of like trying to figure out how to have um, sustainable livelihood and like survive within capitalism while also knowing that like it cannot go on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, so it feels nice to have that kind of nuanced perspective with you and, and that yeah. you support me in holding that because mm-hmm. you provide so many tools. Um, to help me believe that I could be self-sufficient on a business level. Oh, uh, and, and I just, <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate that. Oh, thanks. Um, speaking about business and expression, I would love to know a little bit more about what your, what your relationship to glamour and creativity is right now. You are someone just, I want to just say this because people can't see you. You are mm. wearing excellent lipstick sometimes. <laughs> just to kind of like illustrate this visually <laughs> please tell us more about your glamour sure yeah so um yeah so one of my classes in my series is um on my series herbal support for feminized labor is on glamour and creative practice and um and yes also my personal aesthetic um definitely involves some glamour magic <clears throat> and as um as long as I've known I was femme it's had some element of that Um, so that feels connected on a personal level, but, um, yeah, when I was, um, preparing my class, I really wanted to know the etymology of glamour because there's kind of the association of like, um, decadent beauty in like kind of the more like consumerist sense. Um, and then there's also like the association with like, um, kind of like deceptive magic, Mm-hmm. of like a glamour like someone uh, like a fairy appearing a certain way when that's not their true form mm-hmm. um so I was like where does this word even come from <laughs> uh so I found out it's from the early 18th century and it was originally Scots in the Ooh. sense of enchantment and magic um it's an alteration of grammar and even though grammar wasn't used in that sense the latin word grammatica from which it derives was used in the Middle Ages to mean scholarship or learning, uh, including the occult practices popularly associated with learning. Mm. So I think of it as like this, like magical scholarship 
kind mm-hmm. of in its history. Mm-hmm. Um, so glamour wow. practice. Yeah, I love etymology sometimes. It's really can be really interesting to me. Um, you know about things. um so glamour practice I think of it as one creative discipline um and of course creativity extends to so many beautiful mediums so um it's just one of many and then on a personal level I think of glamour as queer femme protection technology Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) A friend of mine once mentioned how ritual adornment was part of her femme identity, and I've held that idea ever close ever since, and it feels kind of linked. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've learned how to wield glamour as a way to navigate capitalism, Um, particularly one of my jobs is as a professional dominatrix, so that um, comes up in that context. Yeah. And I also just really appreciate the way that beauty is leveraged in the context of feminized labor, like a server wearing makeup and smiling at customers in order to secure more tips or mm-hmm. kind of on the practical level. Um, and then when I was trying to think about an example of like glamour in the sense of magical deception and like weaponizing beauty, um, I thought of this example, um, that will probably require a content warning or something. Um, is it okay if I share? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, have you heard of the, the, the three teenage Dutch girls um, named Hani Schaft and Truce and Freddie Overstegen before? No. no. So they, um, they were teenagers who seduced high-ranking Nazi officers. Oh, yes, they, of course. Yeah, yes. and they lured them into the woods and mm-hmm. killed them. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to that, they provided Jewish kids with safe houses and gathered vital intelligence for mm-hmm. resistance work against the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they had always said like they did what they did because it had to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah. I felt like that um, is an example of like weaponized glamour that mm-hmm. I really appreciate. Yeah. Um, and, and then I guess one other thing I'll say about glamour, one of my significant Jewish ancestors, my grandma E.T., who I was mentioning before, she's the one who, told me we had a candle maker in our, in our lineage. Um, she was definitely one of my glamour roots because in addition to being a working artist, she always wore really elaborate makeup and maximalist fashions. <laughs> and um, when I was little, she would do my makeup and, um, and like drag queen style makeup pretty much. And that was my first experience of glamour magic. So um yeah, that she's, I just always have to acknowledge her as my root. Um, in general, I just love the magic of celebrating one's beauty and creating rituals to feed glamour. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe it can be a means of empowerment for people of all genders, which is why a lot of my curriculum on glamour is about approaches to self-beautification, like herbal skincare, which isn't super gendered. So like my relationship to it is like wrapped up with my gender in ways that I really love, but I do think that like glamour can be for everyone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes, totally. And I I really resonate with that because I think there's so much literally beautiful in thinking about aesthetics and just making things feel good. And I think that's in one way often undervalued and in some ways really objectified and it's a really difficult thing to hold in its complexity right and yet it's something we all deserve like to feel good in our skins to um have beautiful homes and I also love your Instagram feed I'm just looking at it now Uh like you've created harmony between colors and shapes and 
that's so simple. I think sometimes we're thinking of this as something that's invented and owned by capitalism and advertisement. And actually that's not true. Those mm. practices go so far back and they really belong woven into our humanity, I think. So yeah. absolutely. And the desire to to be here and to celebrate being here. It's mm -hmm. like I'm so happy that um that pleasure activism is is trending now, for example. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like kind of kindred with all of this. Yeah, it's been time. Yes, <laughs> totally. Um, I would love to speak to you all day, um, but yep. I totally want to respect your time and our listeners' time. So um, maybe we can talk again next year. That would be awesome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'm also wondering if there's anything more that you would like to share today. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mostly just want to express my gratitude to um, to all of my many teachers and, and peer mentors throughout my life that has gotten that have gotten my work to this point and especially to you Yaro for <laughs> inviting me to speak about my work on your podcast this is like such an amazing opportunity I've never done anything like this before I've never Thank been you. interviewed <laughs> and it's like it's really amazing to be able to reach more people that I might not have been able to connect with otherwise. So thank you so so much. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. I'm really, really glad we talked and I'm so excited to share your work. I really sincerely mean that. I'm really want more people to know about it. So I am mm -hmm. super excited to bring this episode out. I'm really grateful for everything that you shared from your heart and um, so yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> um, before we go, let's let everyone know what you're currently offering and where people can find you. Oh, yes. Thank you. Um, so I am still accepting clients in my clinical pra practice for anyone who lives in the United States, um, since I can manage shipping to the United States uh, easiest at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's for anyone who might be interested in receiving more in-depth attention and custom formulas. I have uh, like a whole testimonials page on my site where you can get a sense of how people have experienced my support. Um, and then I'm also currently translating all of my curriculum on herbal support for feminized labor, um, which at this point I've just been teaching in person around the Bay Area mostly. Um, but I'm translating it all into an online format to increase accessibility and reach. Um, so I'll be maintaining my... Instagram page, my Facebook page, and especially um, putting more energy and attention into my newsletter over the next couple months while I'm simultaneously working on launching these classes throughout early 2020. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll likely be rolling them out one by <laughs> one, but maybe if, if it's if divine inspiration and extra time in my schedule happens, I can try to do some of them rolled out at the same time. <laughs> but mm -hmm. It'll likely be one at a time. Um, and so those classes are, um, I'll just say the names of them. Yes. Uh, so people kind of know what, what's on the horizon. So there's one on glamour and creative practice, um, heartbreak and grief. Uh, there's a class on emotional intelligence and relational work, which I'm pretty sure is going to be the first one to come out. There's one on plant magic and BDSM. There's one called Care at Both Edges of the Veil, which is about child care and hospice work. There will be herbal first aid classes, as well as one called Home Skills, which is about bringing herbalism into cooking and cleaning. And yeah, that's what's, uh, that's what's coming up. Mm -hmm. So cool and so needed. Thank you. I'm very excited for that. 
Thank you so much again for today. Um, I already said all the mushy things. <laughs> One more time. Thank you so much. For <laughs> Thank you. I feel very mushy too. <laughs> Thank you.